Hey, good morning and welcome everyone. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction. Today is Friday, October 4th, 2013, and we're welcoming today uh, two gentlemen from Stealth Peptides who are going to talk to us about Bendavia. I'm really excited to introduce these two speakers, Travis Wilson, who's the President and CEO of Stealth Peptides, as well as Dr. Ben Bronstein, who is the Vice President of Clinical Development for Stealth Peptides. Um, Travis and Ben, welcome. Thank you for having us, Christine. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Great to be with all today. Just in way of a brief introduction, um, I just want to tell the callers that I am so excited about this because um, I've known Travis Wilson for a number of years and have been um, following the development of stealth peptides interest in mitochondrial therapeutics with fingers crossed and holding my breath that um, this some of these exciting opportunities would come to fruition. So it's really a huge milestone in my eyes to have this opportunity to share what you're doing with the mitochondrial disease community. And I'll also say that, um, you know, it's a wonderful chance for us as the patient and parent and advocate community to really embrace a company that cares so much about really treating um, the diseases that affect people's quality of life. And that comes through in your work and in your mission. So um, that makes me even more excited to welcome you guys today. So I'll let you guys introduce maybe yourselves briefly with your background, and then um, we'll go ahead and get started. So, Travis, will you um, tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'd be happy to, Christy. I am Travis Wilson, and again, thanks, everyone, for taking the time this Friday to join us and, and talk a little bit about Vendavia, a drug that uh, Dr. Bronson and I have been working on for the last few years. Um, my background is in venture capital and starting these biotech companies, but I had a personal interest in getting involved in mitochondria a number of years ago, and that's part of the formation of stealth, uh, and it's really to advance what we believe is an area where certainly the patients on the phone have needs for therapies, but everyone we believe has mitochondrial disease of one type or another, and we're really trying to be able to bring therapies uh, to, to both patients that have genetic mitochondrial disorders as well as those areas like heart failure or other renal disease, neurodegeneration. So thank you for the time, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Bronstein. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Bronstein. Tell us a little bit about yourself yes. as well. Thank you, Christy, and uh, good day to everyone. Uh, wherever you are, whichever time zone you're in. Um, my name is Ben Bronstein. I'm a pathologist um, by training and spent my early career at the Mass General Hospital in Boston uh, doing pathology and later uh, started working with small companies to develop products for um, a variety of diseases and have worked uh, uh, for the last 25 years doing that, working with companies to bring products through the clinic and onto the market. As well, I've also been in venture capital, and so I've got to see what it takes to um, to fund these and, and, and the work that goes into developing these products. And I'm particularly excited to be working at Stealth because I think this has been an area that's been neglected. I think there's now a lot more um, knowledge and understanding about the, the central role that mitochondria play in a whole variety of diseases, both inherited and sporadic diseases, if you will. So I think this is a... Um, a terrific opportunity to approach disease from a different perspective uh, or a different target and certainly uh, uh, make a major improvement in people's lives. 
Absolutely, and that's what's so exciting. So without further ado, we're going to talk about Vendavia. Let me just remind folks how they can follow the slides. If you're calling in right now, if you go to um, mitoaction.org and then look for the link under most recent news for introducing Vendavia, you'll see right at the top of the page how you can open up a PDF document that will allow you to follow along with these slides today. You're lucky if you're listening live because these slides will not be available for long. If you're listening to the recording, then um, just pay attention, but we will give you a chance to go find some more information uh, at the end of the talk. So, um, Travis and Dr. Bronstein, thank you, and I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Christy. So, with everyone, I hope you have the PDF open, and we're going to start really basic and talk about what we've been doing with stealth peptides over the last four years and developing this drug that you'll hear about in the talk today, Bendavia. So I'm on slide one, and, and really it's just the our, our mantra here at, at Stealth, and that's to push and lead mitochondrial therapeutics for those patients that are on the phone and then the broader population of everyone that has one type of mitochondrial disease or another. I'm looking at slide two. And this is very basic, and everyone probably knows where mitochondria come from. But if you don't, uh, the origins of mitochondria really have their roots in two different types of cells, prokaryotic cells, which are essentially bacteria, and eukaryotic cells, which are cells with, with a nucleus, like the cells that we have in our body. And many, many millions of years ago, these two types of cell types got together, and they actually formed mitochondria. So this is the accepted theory of where mitochondria come from. It's really prokaryotic cells introducing themselves to eukaryotic cells, and those eukaryotic cells over time morph and change the prokaryotic cells, bacterial-like, to form mitochondria and be those powerhouses of the cells that we all know about them today. I'm moving on to slide three. Um, probably for those patients that are on the phone, you probably have all uh, seen physicians and have had a genetic diagnostic tests to sort of look at uh, the, the background of uh, genetic mitochondrial disease. And although there are therapies downstream in the future that are looking at trying to fix the, the basic genetic pathology of the disease, right now what we're talking about with Bendavia is really to base ourselves around two fundamental components of mitochondria. And those are, we know, mitochondria produce energy. They're often termed the powerhouse of the cell. And that energy is called ATP. And we make ATP from the food we eat and the air that we breathe. The flip side of what mitochondria do in the body are Reactive oxygen species, or what you'll see on slide three, is ROS. So ROS is oxidative stress. And, and for all the patients with mito, um, understand that during times of a high oxidative stress, there is much more of a challenge to the mitochondria and some of the manifestations of disease that take place because that oxidative burden is so large and mitochondria are producing excessive oxidative stress in ROS. And if you push that too far, the flip side is ROS induces apoptosis or cellular death. So today's talk, we're going to focus around 
these two coins or two sides of a coin of mitochondria. One, the good that mitochondria do and bring us energy or ATP. And second, the also other end of that spectrum, and that's producing the bad ROS that we're familiar with as oxidative stress. So if you move on to slide four, this is, as I mentioned at the outset uh, of the call today, we believe and self believes that everyone has mitochondrial dysfunction in one way or another. If you come back to the basic sentence that I mentioned of reactive oxygen species and oxidative stress, and the other side of that coin, ATP. And the reason that we talk about ROS and ATP and everyone having mitochondrial disease is because a process as simple as aging has changes in ROS and ATP. As you walk down this continuum of mitochondrial dysfunction, you sort of can point to under healthy, there's the aging and risk factors associated with certain lifestyles such as smoking or obesity. Now, we know ROS and ATP start to shift to a greater extent of ROS and less ATP with age, and we all know that everyone ages. And then we're going to talk a little bit today about some of the common diseases that we've been focused on currently with our Phase two studies in clinical trials, and those are chronic heart failure and chronic kidney disease, denoted here as CHF and CKD. And we know that those patients that you may have family members or, or colleagues that have heart failure or have chronic kidney disease, and it's the same situation that you have when you're aging. Now your ROS, your oxidative stress burden is higher, and your ATP levels are lower. And as I mentioned, for some of those with mito, ROS is often characterizing the disease by very high levels, and ATP, that lack of energy, is often very low. And if we push it too far down that continuum, you end up in apoptosis and no ATP, as we talked about at the outset, the flip side of what mitochondria can do in the body. Yeah, and, and with apoptosis, certainly that is a cell death event, and that cell death can be seen in cell types as common as the heart, the kidney, the eye, all the areas that are affected by or, or that patients with mito have affected. Now, slide five is a very often a simple way that we talk about mitochondrial function and calling mitochondria really our energy grid of the body. So the picture on the left-hand side, that's a nucleus and a cell with the orange being mitochondria. So those mitochondria have been tracked with the dyes out so that you can actually see what those individual mitochondria, how they look extending out from the red nucleus of the cell. So that's an energy grid. In all diseases, those mitochondria are required to produce energy and power that cell and the network of cells that make up the various organs of the body. Now, if you look to the right, the image on the right, uh, we put here, this is the 2012 Derecho storm that came through Washington, D.C., in those mid-Atlantic states on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. in 2012. And what happened during that period of time is 
you went through a brownout. There was a, a brownout. The energy grid of the seaboard, eastern seaboard there, lost energy, and most patients uh, that would lose energy in a disease, it's very similar when you do the analogy to a brownout situation like this. Essentially, the lights have gone dim, and there's a power outage that's dysfunctional across, whether it's the mitochondria or in the picture of the satellite image to eastern seaboard. And we talk about gradual brownouts and diseases like heart failure all the time. And we also talk about rapid blackouts, or the major cataclysmic events that happens in a, in a blackout is the same that happens in an acute disease, such as labor's hereditary optic neuropathy. Now, just moving to, to slide six, and this really focuses on those components ROS and ATP. And we often talk about these two uh, components, the flip side of mitochondria, as being a vicious cycle because, as you've seen from the data when we talked about the continuum of the disease, ATP usually goes down when ROS goes up. And it's a vicious cycle. Once that cycle starts, it continues, and you have less energy for the cells and more oxidative stress for the cells. Now, I've listed diseases here that are very common in the U.S. and worldwide, a disease like heart failure. Well, that's a mitochondrial disease. We know that. And now we know that autism is a disease that there certainly is a mitochondrial dysfunction component to autism. Many of you on the phone may have, have mito and be characterized in this rare mitochondrial genetic disease area. There are other diseases like sepsis or septic shock that often happens in an ICU unit of a hospital. That's been linked by some of the major researchers and clinicians all the way back to mitochondria as a genesis for that disease. Neurodegeneration, diabetes, ophthalmology, and kidney disease. We know all of those areas of disease have mitochondrial components to their pathology. And what we're working on here at Stealth is how can we look at therapies that focus around reducing excessive ROS, that excessive oxidative stress, and increasing or normalizing the levels of ATP and energy in these disease states. Dr. Boston. I was just going to mention for those of you who are looking at these and wondering how it is that such disparate diseases that have many different causes, uh, each of the causes are different, or what we call etiologies, result in the same type of um, cell death. And that's related to the fact that mitochondrial dysfunction is, in essence, a final common pathway. Whether you have a lack of blood flow to a tissue and they're deprived of oxygen, whether there's inflammation that causes damage, or there is a collection of abnormal protein and neurodegenerative disease, in the end, these results in, in um, damaging or otherwise impeding the activity in mitochondria and lead to, as, um, as Travis uh, said earlier, to cell death, and, uh, which is a common feature in all of the diseases we're talking about. And thank you, uh, Dr. Bonstein. The, the other area that when you look at all of these diseases, you start to ask the question, well, why haven't people looked at drugs for mitochondria dating all the way back to when they first started to identify 
in diseases such as heart failure as having a mitochondrial component. And slide seven really tries to capture why there are therapeutic hurdles to targeting mitochondria in the body for disease treatment. The first very basic level is when you start to think about cells in the body, though the mitochondria are inside the cell, we all know that. And that means to reach the mitochondria with the drug, you have to be able to get through the cell wall and inside the cell. So that's the first hurdle that's often much more challenging to overcome than one would typically imagine. The secondary component to that is now once the drug is inside the cell, where does it go? And you saw a number of pictures that I showed you today that have the nucleus of the cell. That's often where many drugs tend to wind up because the nucleus is at the center and a large target inside the cell. Well, how do you focus and get specifically to the mitochondria? And that's also a challenge, that specificity once you're inside the cell. And then we know once you get to the mitochondria, you have to actually get inside the mitochondria and to the cristae, which are shown here on slide 7, sort of these inner workings of the mitochondria that are really fundamentally involved in the electron transport within cells. Back to this energy grid, in order to be able to make ATP, we need to work on the electron transport chain in the mitochondria and have that be an area where drugs can get to and interact with in a positive way. And certainly once you're inside the mitochondria and you've made it all the way to the electron transport chain, the challenge is sometimes drugs have certain toxicities. So how much is too much or how little doesn't provide you efficacy? So there's obviously hurdles that are out there, and as you all know in those patients with MITO, there are significant hurdles that we have to overcome to bring therapies to patients. The other component, as we all know, is we're looking at mitochondrial DNA. You know, most of the, the patients on the phone today and those that have been diagnosed with MITO have either a mitochondrial DNA component or a nuclear DNA component, and those are areas where Currently, there are no available therapies to alter the genetic background for a patient. So if we move to slide eight, I'm talking here about a little of the background with Vendavia. So at, at a very basic level of what makes up that cristae structure on the mitochondria? And part of it is composed of this lipid called cardiolysin. Cardiolipin is found exclusively in that inner mitochondrial membrane where the cristae are. There's no other place in the body where cardiolipin is present. And cardiolipin is fundamental in the function of the electron transport chain and its ability to make ATP and prevent the formation of oxidative stress or ROS. And that's what Vendavia does. It interacts with cardiolipin and restores ATP levels and reduces ROS. And I'll talk a little bit about that on the next couple slides. So Vendavia, as I mentioned at the outset, is in several clinical trials, not for mito patients at this point, but for therapeutic areas that are large unmet medical needs, but things that would not typically be associated with mito patients. 
and those are acute coronary syndrome, which you see here, led by Dr. Michael Gibson at Harvard, CKD, which is another phase two study that's led by Dr. Stephen Texter at the Mayo Clinic, and then DME, uh, which is diabetic macular edema, so ophthalmology, and that's led by Dr. Jeff Heyer here at Tufts in Boston, where Ben and I are today. Now, each of these different areas, the heart, the kidney, and the eye, are all areas where mito patients have different diseases, such as Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy, or Friedrich's ataxia when we start to talk about cardiovascular, because mitochondria plays a significant role in how these different organ systems function, whether you're talking about these common diseases or specifically mito disease. And we've put a little graphic here on the right-hand side talking about where does Bendavia come from? Often people ask, what's in the name? And you see a picture here of the cristae structure of mitochondria. And we go back to the term mitochondria itself came from a German physician in the 1800s known as Carl Bende. And Dr. Bende coined that term mitochondria when we start to look at his description in Greek terms of what he saw inside the cell, going all the way back to the earlier slides where I talked about these prokaryotic cells and eukaryotic cells getting together. And we've really taken uh, the term Bendavia to come from its origins with Dr. Carl Benda. And I'm moving on to the next slide, slide nine. And this really just drives home what we spoke about a little bit earlier, and that is all of these areas that you see here they're all afflicted with mitochondrial dysfunction of some type or another. Certainly for patients with mito, certainly for patients that have neurodegeneration, skeletal muscle disorders, all of these areas, we know that mitochondrial dysfunction plays a central role in the disease and its progression. So let me move on to, on to slide 10, and I have another uh, half of slides to go here, and I'll, I'll, I'll speed up the pace a little bit. But I want folks to understand what's going on inside their mitochondria. So on slide 10, you see what the inner mitochondrial membrane looks like. And you see these Roman numerals 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And these are complexes. These are the complexes that make up the electron transport or the respiratory chain in mitochondria. Now, the food we eat and the air that we breathe gets turned into that NADH at the lower right-hand corner, excuse me, lower left-hand corner of the slide. And that gets broken down into electrons. And you see these pathways that are the dotted line and these little red dots. Those are electrons that flow down the electron transport chain. And when they flow down the electron transport chain, they liberate hydrogen, which then returns into the mitochondrial matrix to make ATP. Now, on slide 11, when you have too much of these electrons or dysfunction in these electrons, you start to have a leak of them that forms these reactive oxygen species. And when that forms, that means the electrons are not traveling down this electron transport chain. They're actually leaking out and not forming ATP. And so now you can see, when we focus on ATP and ROS, 
how those are inextricably linked, and how this phospholipid in the middle, this cardiolipin that I mentioned earlier, you see that making up this entire complexes from one, two, three, four, and five. And when cardiolipin starts to become dysfunctional, it's as if the bridge of all of these different complexes has lost its bricks. And those bricks have now fallen out and the bridge has become dysfunctional. And now you have no ability to get from complex one to complex four without leaking out or, in the case of the bridge analogy, without actually getting stopped before you make it all the way down to form ATP. And this is how Bendavia works. It works on this lipid, cardiolipin, to make sure that the bridge is brought together and that electrons, after we take in food and air, can be broken down and moved from complex one to complex four to generate ATP. So, so what does that mean in, in disease? And, and this is all published work or soon-to-be-published work, as, as Christy mentioned. And these are some of the uh, top academic labs in Boston, in California, in uh, Seattle, and Washington that have looked at how do we modify disease with Bendavia. So on slide 12, this looks at ATP. And ATP shows up and can be tracked very simply by looking at the fluorescence inside the cell. And in disease, when you look at the graphic that says control, you see in disease, that ATP level gets lower and lower until the cell finally collapses and dies. And if you look at those same cells in disease treated with Bendavia, that color red is maintained bright and able to function despite the prevalence of the disease because Bendavia is being the bridge that allows cardiolipin to pull together and form that ATP inside the mitochondria. Now, slide 13, the flip side of ATP, ROS. And just as you wanted to have ATP high and maintain that red color, what you don't want to have happen in this set of data is to be able to generate excessive ROS, which leads to cell death. And in the same disease, over the course of 12 minutes, you can look at the cells and you can see that they start to get brighter and brighter green. And then at minute 12, the cell has too much reactive oxygen species and it goes into apoptosis and death. The Bendavia-treated mitochondrion cells, despite the presence of the disease, regardless of that genetic background, prevents the formation of that ROS and prevents the cell death. Now, if we move to slide 14, I'm going to talk just for a moment about heart failure and where ATP and ROS play a role in heart failure. Now, as many of you know, the heart pumps and, and contracts and relaxes based primarily on how much ATP that its mitochondria are generating. If the ATP in the heart is maintained, the heart contracts and relaxes more functionally in heart failure patients. In slide 15, this was some data that was presented at the American College of Cardiology, and I circled here ES. What is ES? That's the ability of the heart to contract and pump blood. And if you look at animals with heart failure and 
those animals treated with Bendavia, you can see that there's a dramatic improvement in the ability of the heart to contract as measured by the ejection fraction. But this is different than how most people try to treat heart failure. Most people try to treat heart failure by changing the demands of energy in the heart. And what does that mean? It means essentially moving heart rate up or down or trying to increase blood pressure or reduce blood pressure to get the optimal pumping of the heart. And we're saying if you can just supply more ATP and make that normal, both systolic and diastolic, the contraction and the relaxation of the heart are improved with Vendavia. And you can really see that on 16. This is some more data presented at the American Heart Association annual meeting in Los Angeles last year. And you can see that the mitochondria and, and cells that are treated with Vendavia in these animals have this formed cristae structure that is maintained despite the prevalence of heart failure. And you can see the animals that are, are not treated or treated with saline, their mitochondria lose that cristae and are starting to become bloated and swollen. So you can actually see what's happening to that original cristae structure that we talked about and see if that becomes dysfunctional, if the bridge starts to fall apart, you're not able to make ATP and your ROS gets greater and greater. Um, moving on to slide 17, I'll talk just a minute about renal disease. We know, just like the heart, that the kidney, to function properly, needs mitochondria to be maintained so that the energy can be produced to allow the kidney to do all of its cleansing roles within the body. All the cleansing, uh, the toxins and things that we have in our body, the kidneys need to be able to function properly and have mitochondrial functioning to be able to do their role in the body. Now, slide 18, this is some data that come out in, in the Journal of American Heart Association, a journal called Hypertension. And this was work that was done by the Mayo Clinic, and we're looking at four images of the vasculature in the kidney. The first image is what the normal vasculature looks like. The middle two are the diseases. And then the fourth, these are these diseases treated with Vendavia. So we're actually showing improvements in the microvasculature of the kidneys. Now, this is the same type of improvements that would benefit function in the heart. It would benefit function in skeletal muscle and potentially benefit function in ophthalmology for patients that have a mito disease or patients that have something more common like a diabetic macular edema ophthalmology disease. And then I'm going to mention on slide 19, skeletal muscle, and highlight one bit of data from that. And just like the heart, we're all familiar with how ATP produces uh, the ability of the heart to contract and relax. And we all know that skeletal muscle also contracts and relax. And this is showing two different groups of animals, one at five months old, where there's no changes when you start to bring in Bendavia in in terms of ATP production. And that's because these are normal, healthy animals. But as we all get older, remember we mentioned mitochondrial disease is a, is a disease in aging as well. And as we get older, 
ATP begins to go down. And so this is showing that when we look at measuring ATP inside the animals through very complex uh, spectroscopic techniques, we can show that Bendavia begins to restore ATP in these elderly animals. And if you treat long enough over the course of seven days, as was reported by our colleagues at the University of Washington, you see that Bendavia actually improves endurance in these aged animals. So again, just as you improve heart function by improving the energy that the, the heart is seeing, you can improve skeletal muscle function by improving the ATP that, enter, that the skeletal muscle requires. And the last bit of data, as I mentioned on slide 21, moving to slide 22, is what happens when you look at vision and that as a readout of whether Bendavia is impacting vision in disease. So this study was done by some of our colleagues at Cornell University and was presented at the American Diabetes Association last year. And it's a system in which we know that animals have an inability to move their eyes like humans do. And so instead of moving their eyes when they track things, they move their head. And when they stop moving their head, you know that their vision has declined. And so in animals with diabetes, the graph to the right shows these yellow dots. And that's the loss of vision in diabetic animals over the course of 28 weeks. And as we start to give Bendavia topically as an eye drop, you're showing the restoration and normalization of vision through the mitochondrial actions that we spoke about earlier with ATP and ROS. This does not change blood glucose in these diabetic animals or body weight. It's restoring their vision by making sure that their vision is compensated with reduced ROS, reduced oxidative stress, and maintained energy levels. And so the last slide that, that I'll, I'll mention and, and uh, turn it over to Christy and Dr. Bronstein is we're looking at Bendavia to treat that continuum of mitochondrial dysfunction, whether it's those with mitre disease who have excessive ROS and decreased ATP, or those patients with heart failure, which have poor contractility or relaxation in their heart. So Bendavia has been in over 100 different publications and papers over the last five years that we've been developing it. And now we have more than 300 patients of experience with the drug as part of those phase two clinical trials. And we hope that we can one day bring Bendavia to MITO patients uh, and start to look at correcting what we think are two fundamental components of every genetic mitochondrial disease, and that's excessive ROS and decreased ATP. Thanks for your attention. Travis, um, what a great overview this has been just for all of us about mitochondria. I, you know, my favorite line out of the whole thing is that everyone has mitochondrial disease. So I think that that really resonates with our patient and family community, and I do have a few questions that have come in from email, but I wanted to give Dr. Bronstein a, a moment to add any additional comments also. So, um, Dr. Bronstein, anything else that you want to add? Well, I think actually, as you mentioned, Charles has done a terrific job of, I think, uh, giving a very clear and, frankly, concise overview of, you know, but with plenty of detail and data, 
of the issues surrounding mitochondrial dysfunction. Hopefully it's clear to everyone. So rather than adding to that, I think it would be good to listen to the questions and if there were any questions about the presentation to them, um, uh, maybe add some um, more information there and some clarity if there's any uh, confusion. Okay, so I'm going to unmute everyone in just a moment, but I'll go ahead and take the questions that I received by email um, now, and I will tell folks that if you want to email me your questions, director at mitoaction.org, if you um, would like me to ask on your behalf or make sure that we get to it, I'd be glad to. So the first question um, is a great question from Lisa, and Lisa mentions that the labor's community, also known as Elhan, um, oftentimes presents with neurological symptoms and multi-system dysfunction. So does that um, change at all the what you predict would be, I guess, the criteria for participating in future trials, and um, what are your comments about how you think that that may have an impact for patients who um, have multi-system disease to be treated with Vendavia, theoretically. Sure. Uh, let, me, let me just say that in uh, labor's hereditary apneurapathy, typically it is confined to the, the visual system, but certainly there can be other uh, organs involved or other tissues. And you know, I think um, initially we're you know, going to be focused on the visual uh, aspects, but certainly there's every reason to believe that it could impact other uh, other functions, other organ systems equally well. I mean, these are based on, in labors, as you know, is based on a very interesting, very clear-cut set of um, uh, genetic um, aberrations, or I guess I'd call them mutations, and, and therefore we can clearly define that disease and Clearly related to mitochondrial dysfunction, and therefore, um, and we know its exact impact on the uh, respiratory chain, as uh, Travis had, uh, spoke about, and therefore, there's every reason to believe uh, that this could have a positive um, impact on uh, multi, uh, what we call them syndromes or multi organ uh, involvement. Uh, of course, that needs to be proven, uh, but we think this is a, a, a labor surrogate neuropathy is clearly, I think, one of our, you know, a, a good target for us to be looking at. And, and I think, Christy, just to add on, on, on Ben's comments and, and the question, because Bendavia does affect all the different mitochondrial dysfunctions, whether it's neurologic, cardiac, ophthalmologic, or skeletal muscle, when we think of things like dystonia, we think that there, there is potential in diseases where the phenotypical presentation may be different despite the similar genetic background, that Vendavia may be able to correct some of those other mitochondrial dysfunctions systemically. Again, as, as Dr. Rodstein pointed out, we need, to, we need to do the proper clinical studies and understand that more clearly, but, but that, that's certainly our hope. I think one of the interesting aspects as well is that the fact that these very clear uh, mutations have an impact on a specific protein that's very well defined, uh, NADH oxidase, so we know exactly, and it, that affects complex one in the mitochondria. So we really have a very good knowledge of this. And I guess my question would be almost the reverse: is why doesn't it affect more tissues, but um, more generally, because it is the same defect? But for whatever reason, uh, clearly the, um, there are various syndromes or various uh, collections of uh, symptoms and uh, organs that are affected in different diseases. And, but I think by looking at this, this final common pathway as we're doing, um, there's every reason to believe we could have a positive impact in multiple areas. 
so to really simplify, you know, it's interesting because it's it's as if you're treating the root cause right. of disease, and often with disease, um, mitochondrial disease patients can certainly attest to this because they get everything thrown at them. You're treating the disease from the top down. You have, you know, you have anemia, so you're going to supplement with iron, but you don't really ever understand what necessarily the root cause is to try to, or you can't correct it. So you're just throwing stuff kind of on top of it. And in this way, you're really looking at it from the bottom up. You're getting underneath the cause. Um, I'm sure that's simplifying it, but it's exciting because then there is potential, I think, to have um, some opportunities to make improvements in areas that are very difficult otherwise to treat. Um, you, you, you know, Chrissy, that, that's a very good point. I, I didn't mention much in the slides today. But all the data that you saw um, is really focused around that root cause. And, and, and what I mean by that is we showed that diabetes could be treated without changing glucose, which everyone assumes you have to do. But if you're treating at the organ level, at the cell level, at the mitochondrial level, rather than changing lipids for patients that have cholesterol problems or heart rate for patients that have heart disease or glucose levels for patients that are diabetic, if you can actually treat at the mitochondrial level, you fix the problems with the disease without changing those things like the iron deficiencies that you spoke of. Absolutely. So, um, so really a, a great point. Okay, I have another question. This is from Jennifer. Jennifer says that her child has KSS, which for those of you that don't know is Kern-Sayre syndrome, and he has a large mtDNA deletion as opposed to specific electron transport chain mutations. So um, do you have any comment on how Bendavia might apply in this situation when we're talking about mitochondrial um, deletions because then the electron transport chain isn't directly impacted? Any thoughts? Um, well, I, I, I think, Christy, you know, from a, a, a mitochondrial genetic deletion standpoint, we, I don't think the Davia can, can answer those questions, but if there are components of ATP and ROS to that disease, there may be some, there may be opportunities to, to, to see if there could be an impact in, in certain Sayers patients. You know, in, in a sense, whether it's a deletion or whether it's, just, in essence, a silencing because the gene, the, the, the gene, the DNA bases in the gene are changed in some way, the result's still the same. You're, you have a loss of a protein that may be essential in the, in the pathway, and therefore um, you will have, in, in this sort of pharmacomic pathway, an outcome where um, you may be able to preserve respiratory change function with the value. That is clearly the, the focus of what we're doing, looking there at that perspective. Okay, super. I have a couple more questions that are coming in um, rapidly, and then we'll certainly open the lines for people to ask also. So a um, couple questions from callers about side effects. If you'd comment a little bit about what were any negative effects of Bendavia in the studies that have been done so far. Looking at, at side effects, I, I think it's, you know, Bendavi has been safe and well tolerated in the three to 400 patients and volunteers that we've been in so far. 
Um, you know, obviously, uh, the, the phase three and, and commercial uh, use of, of the drug has not been reached, but, but so far, you know, we're looking at a, a safe and well-tolerated profile um, with Bendavia's use, whether it's, it's orally or whether it's in the, um, another route of administration. And I did have some questions also about um, method of administration. You know, there have been a lot of drugs in the past that have been very limited, meaning they had to be administered through an IV or so forth. Could you just comment on what has been the route of administration so far in Bendavia? Go ahead, Dr. Uh, so far, we've, we have worked at IV, but also oral, subcutaneous. Uh, the studies that we're going to be looking at for eye disease will be eye drops. So there are, we can formulate this, as we say a variety of ways that would allow different routes of administration. Um, we need to look at more patients you know, in terms of safety profiles, the exact dosings, the dosage that would be necessary, but we have not found it's a, it's a small molecule, it's not, um, it, it's soluble, that means it can go into solutions, so we haven't found anything that really restricts our ability to give this drug by, by um, a, a different routes. But over time, we need to be looking at larger populations. And that goes for the safety. Clearly, we know what's safe in terms of the patients and normal subjects that have received it so far, but we have to look in specific um, disease states or conditions to, um, to fully answer that. And, um, but so far, the, the news is very good on all fronts, both in formulation, delivery, and safety. That's very good, and for people who are interested, we'll post the um, links to a few places where you can look on um, PubMed to read the articles for more information as well after the call. So I'm going to open up the lines and let um, some folks ask questions as well, um, if Travis and Dr. Bronstein, if that's okay with you. Okay, so just that, that's perfect, Christy. Okay, yeah, perfect. I'll remind callers that you know we will be able to hear everything you're doing. So if you are have background noise or you're talking to your kids or you're on a cell phone and there's interference, please um, have the kindness to use star six to mute your line so that we just get the best call quality as possible while we're taking a few more questions. All right, so um, I had a question come in from Jean over email, and Jean, I'm going to let you go ahead and ask your question if you're still with us. Jean, are you still with us? Yes, I'm still with you. Uh, let me find my questions. And I um, when do you expect the clinical trials for minor patients to start? What will be the criteria for inclusion? And will the clinical trials be restricted just to the Boston area or be in major international locations? Okay, so a three-part question there from Jean. And I'm sure um, Travis and Dr. Bronstein, it's kind of the burning question of the day now that you have all of us excited about Bendavia, which is um, what's next? You know, um, if you had a crystal ball, what would you hope that it showed for the future? And can you talk a little bit about what you think that will look like in terms of criteria for inclusion or what you hope it will and where we might expect to see some of the first research being done? So certainly, we are looking towards the middle of next year to um, begin uh, our first study in a mitochondrial uh, disease, and that is specifically in a uh, mitochondrial disease, we called it. Um, we are going to be initially looking at uh, labor's hereditary optic neuropathy. So 
that, that would be one disease indication we're going to be looking at. We um, are right now putting together a plan for that, but it's going to take some time to finalize the plan and uh, produce the material for it. We're, we're comfortable that this is a, we can uh, certainly uh, look to have a potentially good impact on this disease given what we understand about it. But again, we have to do those studies. Now, in terms of the timing, as I said, at the middle of uh, next year, potentially, that will be the first disease. We don't have all of the inclusion criteria yet. Um, it, we will be looking at patients who obviously have lost, well, actually, obviously who have loss of visual function, and that not, may not be just their um, best corrective visual acuity, as we call it, but some defects in certain areas of their vision. So that's those patients will be looking to treat. And as you know, there are some studies that have been done, and what people are looking for is not only to prevent progression of these diseases, but to improve them. And that by giving these medications, um, Bendavia and others, we're all looking to see if we can reverse some of these effects, some we won't be, uh, some of these um, um, disease processes. In others, we want to stabilize them and prevent further um, damage and injury. So, uh, the criteria are not completely worked out yet. We're going to be starting with this group of disorders we've called the mitochondrial optic neuropathies. These are a group of disorders in which the eye, the optic nerve of the eye is affected, such as in labors, dominant optic atrophy, and others. Uh, we're also going to be looking, we are starting to look at other um, diseases as potential places where we think we can have very good impact, such as Frederick's ataxia, among others. So, uh, there is no specific uh, disease that we're not thinking about, but we are going to be looking at the optic diseases for us. Perfect. That's a great answer. Thank you. And just um, if you'll comment, if you have any ideas whether these will be international studies or limited to the United States. I think initially we're going to, you know, one wants to be, in a sense, you know, very um, thoughtful about how you do this. So we're going to start in the states where we are going to be able to really be following patients very closely initially. Um, we, we are looking at, at a center. Uh, we probably will, in fact, use one center. And we will um, treat a small number of patients, follow the, the, um, the improvement of, uh, we hope, <laughs> in disease and the safety of the, of the drug. And then uh, increase and expand enrollment as we go. And we're looking into a the actual strategy to do that right now, where we could expand um, the studies as we go along, and we're finding both safety and some signs of efficacy. Wonderful. Um, so we have time for a couple more questions, and then I want to sh share with folks where they can go to get more information and how they can stay up to date about what's happening with Vendavia. So um, anyone else who's on the line have a question that hasn't been covered yet? Yes, up there a question. Um question here in phase two um, with the chronic heart failure patients. Can you elaborate on uh, some of the results and how that's affected them? This is Travis, and, and you know, those studies are ongoing, uh, and you know, so far we have uh, had no safety data uh, that's come out adversely in, uh, you know, coming up on 200 patients that have been enrolled in the study, but we're still looking at the final information to come out from those patients from an efficacy standpoint. But what I can say about some of the 
phase one studies that have led up to those studies, some of the same type of efficacy parameters that we have seen in, uh, in the models that we talked about earlier today, we saw some of that translate into the outcomes in the patient population uh, uh, that we've looked at for phase one studies. So to your question, heart failure we don't have, but some of the biomarker parameters in earlier developments in phase one, we saw those translate from uh, animal models to patients. Great, thank you. Great question. Anyone else have a question they'd like to ask Travis or Dr. Bronstein? Yes, I would uh, just like to find out, has there been any problem with allergic response to the medicine? None so far. No, no worries. None that we've seen. Great question. So, um, really a lot of a lot of hope and promise for our community from this. And uh, Travis and Dr. Bronstein, I hope you get a sense of that, that, you know, this is a community that has not had a lot of options and that we um, are so appreciative of this type of work. Um, I had a question that I wanted to ask you to comment on. Um, just tell us a little bit, because we are so focused on primary mitochondrial disease. Uh, give us the big picture. When you go to these other meetings in cardiology and in renal or kidney disease, what are they saying about mitochondria? Is it really becoming a better understood uh, organelle in those other disease states? You're absolutely right, Christy. It, it is, and, and it, perhaps it's because the the heart is, is known to be such a uh, an organ with significant energy requirements, and people have started to look at the mitochondria. But the world of cardiology has really led that, that role of mitochondria in diseases of the heart. And if you're at a meeting like the American Heart Association annual meeting the European Society of Cardiology, um, you will find that in those different annual meetings, there's usually a day session in each of those about the role of mitochondria uh, in, in heart disease. And now we're starting to see that even more in the annual meetings, for example, from the American Society of Nephrology and, and the kidney physicians you're starting to see them talk about mitochondria. In ophthalmology, uh, you know, then you can comment, but I think you've seen it at some of the ophthalmology annual meetings. I think it's clear that people are starting to look at the role of mitochondria in a whole variety of diseases that are both what I call primary mitochondrial diseases, which you call them, labor's hereditary optic neuropathy, or others where there's a clear-cut a defect in a protein produced by a gene, whether it's a mitochondrial gene or a nuclear gene, and also in diseases in which they are not genetically determined, if you will. These are diseases like age-related macular degeneration, you probably have There are some toxins that are produced over time that accumulate in, in, in certain cells in the eye. And I think finally caused this, the damage to the, the visual cells, the recept photoreceptors in the eye, by triggering um, the apoptosis that, that Travis talked about. In terms of these toxins damage the mitochondria, they interfere with the mitochondrial uh, electron transport chain and lead to apoptosis cell death. And, and 
that's where we're seeing to see. So I can say that people are very much starting to focus very broadly, uh, no pun intended, in ophthalmology on looking at um, the role that mitochondria play. Um, so it's uh, an important area. And I think if we think about it just in terms of when people ask about, for example, congestive heart failure and all these other diseases, and it may at first be confusing, but I think if we think of it in terms of you either have an um, um, a, 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 an issue with DNA not producing the appropriate protein that's necessary for mitochondrial function, or that they're not receiving nutrients if the blood flow to a tissue is impaired, for example, um, or delivery is impaired, then you'll have mitochondrial dysfunction, or if a toxin is delivered that interferes with mitochondrial function. So we have sort of two sides here, one in which there's a reaction to a lack of nutrients or to a production of toxins, and the other is a genetic basis for it. And um, in, in the end, I think they're all going to be amenable, essentially, to um, a, a, a compound that can protect the mitochondrial transfer, the mitochondria. That's fantastic. Um, so I think we're wrapping up on our um, questions. I want to direct people where they can go to get a little bit more um, information. So Travis and Dr. Bronstein, can I share with folks um, the page on Bandavia with the FAQs on the MitoAction website, and then uh, you all can comment on additional resources as well? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So um, knowing that this is of such great interest, to the mitochondrial disease community. Um, Travis, who is the CEO of um, Stealth Peptides, but very in touch with the, the physician and patient community, and Dr. Bronstein have been so gracious as to help develop the FAQ page that is really um, directly answering a lot of these questions. So you can go to that page um, on the MitoAction website, and I'm actually posting the link on um, the page you found about today's call as well. It's mitoaction.org backslash bendavia, B-E-N-D-A-V-I-A, just like it sounds. And that's um, a place where you can read a little bit more of the science as well as see some FAQs. Um, I encourage you to share this information. And, um, you know, I'll ask uh, Travis and Ben to give us some ideas of how we can find some information to share with our physicians as well. The other thing I want to encourage you all to do is to, um, if this is of interest to you and you'd like to know when clinical trials um, become available and be contacted, um, then I'd like you to join the Bendavia communication list. So there's a link to that on that page, mitoaction.org slash Bendavia. Um, down at the bottom of the page, and I want to ask you to go ahead and, and just take a minute to fill that out because then as soon as there's information available about these clinical trials, um, you'll be the first to know by being sure to fill out that little quick survey. So, uh, Travis and Dr. Bronstein, let's assume that other people want to share this information with their doctor and or learn a little bit more than what we've covered today. What do you suggest? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, would be useful, certainly, Christy, is staying in touch with with, with you and, and us um, and, you know, probably reading about some of the papers that, that have been published by the academic centers, Cornell University, the Mayo Clinic, uh, Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. You know, having that, that sort of impartial uh, look at the types of things that, that we've 
studied with Pendavia, I think could be could be helpful for you know, educating your patient's network. I think that's exactly right, and that's the appropriate approach. Um, perfect. I think that everyone is really excited. I mean, we've had um, I've had a lot of emails coming through, and people are I see people are sharing this on their social media because they're really excited. So I do want to encourage you, um, everyone who is excited about it, a couple things um, to submit your information so that we can stay in touch with you about Bendavia. And um, certainly, if you haven't before, it's a great chance to. Educate yourself a little bit. Anyone can go to pubmed.gov and um, even search the word Vendavia and pull up those studies. In addition, uh, I'll ask Travis and Dr. Bronstein to send me links to a few abstracts of really great articles that would be good to um, share. And then we'll just continue to stay tuned, certainly, with um, stealth peptides and to hear all of these exciting um opportunities that are available for mito patients and to keep abreast of what's happening to help patients with other diseases and to see how, you know, as, as you said, Travis, how that mitochondrial dysfunction impacts so many different disease states that um, there's a whole new field of mitochondrial medicine really exploding right now. And the way that you explained it today was very well done. So thank you so much. Thank you, and thank everyone, really, for participating. Christy, thank you very much, and our thanks to everyone for, for uh, listening in and asking questions. And I think um, mitoaction.org has done a terrific job of creating and, and expanding awareness in this area. You, someone had asked earlier about, you know, is it, are these becoming recognized? And I think you alluded to the to mitochondrial medicine, which is becoming, while may not be a, a specific specialty yet, certainly mitochondrial medicine society exists. There are a number of meetings and organizations that are getting the word out, and I think over time it's going to be this is going to be an area of much greater focus to uh, people. Not that it isn't now, but I think it's going to become very widespread among practitioners to be thinking about this, these diseases, and uh, their, the and uh, the role of mitochondria in disease in general. Absolutely. If if we didn't get a chance to answer your question today, please feel free to email it to me, director at mitoaction.org, and I will be sure to um, see if I can get an answer for you. And uh, and everyone, please help me join join me in thanking uh, Travis Wilson, CEO of Stealth Peptides, and Dr. Brent Stein, um, VP of Clinical Development from Stealth, to thank them for their time today and for sharing this great presentation. Thank you, both of you. You did such a wonderful service to the community by giving us your time today. So we're very excited to see what comes next. Thank you, Christy. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you everyone. Everyone have a great weekend. And if you haven't already, check out that page, mitoaction.org slash Vendavia, and uh, share it with your friends so we can get as many people uh, ready to enroll in Vendavia trials in the next couple of years when they come ready. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Best wishes.